At the close of his earthly career, we find Christ saying to the Father, I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do, John 17:4. On the ground of this he prays, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, verse 5. Furthermore, he said, Father, I will that they may behold my glory, verse 24. Having faithfully discharged his part of the contract, the Father is now in honor bound to bring to heaven everyone for whom Christ died. So far as the elect are concerned, the design of the mediator's work was not that God might, if he would, but that he should, by virtue of his engagement with the surety, actually bestow on the church all that he merited for it. Therefore, we bodily affirm that before there can be the slightest failure in the divine design of the atonement, the Father must betray the Son's confidence in him and prove false to his own stipulation with him. That is impossible. Number three, the veracity of God. In the past eternity, the Father made definite promises to the mediator. From these we may cite the following, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. In the Lord shall all the seeds of Israel, namely the Israel of God, Galatians 6.16, be justified and shall glory, Isaiah 45.25. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, his Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nations abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princesses also shall worship, because of the Lord that is faithful, Isaiah 49.7. He shall see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong, Isaiah 53, 11 and 12. Ask of me, and I shall give the heathen for thine inheritance, and the other most parts of the earth for thy possession, Psalm 2, 8. In view of these promises... Christ had a joy set before him, for which joy he endured the cross and despised the shame. Hebrews 12.2 Now if one man enters into a solemn engagement with another, which is duly ratified, signed, sealed, and witnessed to, for him to attempt to break it would be to violate his honor, forfeit his good name, and make him an object of contempt to all righteous people. But the man who is honorable and upright respects his pledges, his word is his bond. Infinitely more so does all this hold good of him who is the God of truth. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Numbers 23:19. God not only entered into formal covenant with Christ, and not only made him definite promises, but solemnly placed himself on an oath to the certain fulfillment of them. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that is going out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto the beloved, Psalm 89, 34-35. Here then is another sure and unchanging ground of confidence. The very perfections of deity stand pledged into the triumphant issue of Christ's satisfaction. The honor of God is involved in it. His faithfulness is at stake. His veracity is eternally pledged for the fulfillment of every iota of the grand charter between himself and the mediator of his people. Therefore, not a promise can fail, not one elect vessel of mercy 
can be cast out. There can be no failure, for nothing is left contingent on the creature. As Psalm 111.5 declares, He will ever be mindful of his covenant. Here is security indeed. God will not change his mind, revoke his choice, or violate his pledge. Therefore, we boldly affirm that, before there can be the slightest failure in divine design concerning the atonement, the Father would have to falsify his promises, lie to his Son, and go back upon his most solemn oath. Such is utterly impossible. Number four, the power of God. The work of Christ of itself never did, never will, and never can save a single soul. God must carry that death into effect. If the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice should be left for men to receive or reject, men to help forward or impede the prosperity thereof, then his death would be utterly in vain. But the Lord Jesus did not leave the virtues of his atonement to depend upon the creature. No, he commuted his cause and interest unto the Father. Hear him saying, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we, John 17:11. Unto the keeping power of the Father did Christ entrust those for whom he died. We have shown in previous chapters that Christ died not as a private person, but as the federal head of the whole election of grace. Therefore, his final act on the cross must be understood as signifying, Father, into the dying hands I have committed my, parenthesis, mystical spirit, Luke 23:46. And what was the Father's response? Psalm 110 tells us, The Father not only exalted Christ to his own right hand, but solemnly assured him that, the Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, verse 2-3. Thereby he promised to make the preaching of the gospel successful unto the saving of his people. Invincible grace should open hearts to the reception of its message, Acts 16-14, and they should be kept by the power of God through faith and to salvation, 1 Peter 1-5. Therefore we boldly say that before there can be the slightest failure in the divine design, Concerning the atonement, God must be stripped of his omnipotence. But that is impossible. Number five, the justice of God. There are many who plead for the atonement of Christ who, in effect, deny it as well as its open opposers. They suppose that it is conditional atonement of efficacy only to those who comply with certain terms. It is evident, however, that a conditional atonement is no atonement in the proper sense of the word. For an atonement must expiate the sins atoned for, just as a payment cancels the debt. Where, then, there has been an actual atonement made, the sins atoned for never can be punished again, any more than a debt once paid can be charged a second time. It would be unjust in God to charge the debt to the account of man that was fully paid with man's surety. It may be alleged that one man may pay another man's debt upon certain conditions, and that if these conditions are not fulfilled, the debt will be still chargeable upon the debtor. But it is evident that in such cases the surety either does not actually pay the debt till the conditions are fulfilled, or if he has conditionally paid it, he is refunded before it is chargeable upon the debtor. In every such case, the debtor is not really paid, but Jesus has paid the debt. He has already made atonement, and if they for whom he died are not absolved, the debt is charged a second time. Christ can never be refunded. His blood has been shed. There is no possibility that what he suffered can be now either more or less. They, then, who suspend 
the efficacy of the atonement of Christ upon conditions to be complied with by man, in effect deny that atonement has been truly made. Alex Carson wrote that in 1847. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Assuredly. His very perfections move him to give everyone his due. This principle is, is exemplified time after time in Holy Writ. Then shall God make an exception of his son? No, indeed. God ever acts sovereignly, but he never acts unrighteously. Just as he will not, cannot, Exodus 34, 7, remit sin without satisfaction, so he will not, cannot, Job 4, 7, punish sin where satisfaction has been received. To condemn one for whom an atonement has been accepted would be as incompatible with perfect equity as to ignore sin without an atonement. If the punishment of the sin has been born, a remission of the offense follows, of course. God never punishes twice for the same crime. Thus, inasmuch as the oblation of Christ was a legal satisfaction for sin, all for whom it was offered must enjoy the remission of their transgressions. It is a matter of bare justice that those blessings which Christ intended to procure for his people should be actually bestowed upon them. First, because this was promised him as a reward of his obedience and sufferings, that reward has been fully earned. Second, because he actually purchased salvation for them. The enormity of the carnal mind may object that such a conception is a commercializing of divine love, but Scripture does not hesitate to employ pecuniary terms. You are bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6.20. What has been paid for, the purchaser has a right to. To deny that to him would be unjust. Again, the word speaks of our sins as debts, Matthew 6.12. If then Christ has discharged them, he has the right to demand the exception of all for whom he acted as sponsor. Therefore, we boldly affirm that before there can be the slightest failure in the divine design of the atonement, God must cease to hate iniquity and love righteousness. But that is impossible. Number six, the government of God. The law of substitution, which is a principle appointed by the divine government, requires the salvation of all those whom Christ represented. Perfect suretyship, whether we regard the supreme instance and exemplification of it in the work of Christ in our behalf, or the most common and familiar instances as it was exemplified among men, is always and manifestly suretyship, which in its own nature secures and necessitates the reinstatement of every one in whose behalf it is undertaken. John Armour now, as Christ fully met every demand of the law, both perceptive and penal, against his people, its claims have been satisfied, cannot be again enforced. In the fifth chapter of this series, we sought to define with care the meaning of the term substitution. We pointed out that substitutionary suffering is that which is endured in the stead of others in their actual place. Such suffering inevitably carries with it the exemption of the party or parties in whose room it is endured. What is done or suffered by a substitute completely absolves those whom he represents from doing or suffering the same thing. Christ so satisfied the law of God in behalf of his people that the law can now make no claim whatsoever upon them. The death of Christ was as truly and actually a substitutionary one as was the death of those animals sacrificed in the Old Testament times in lieu of the death of the transgressor offering them. Thus, the substitutionary satisfaction of Christ requires divine justice to remit the sins and to reinstate in divine favor all those for whose sake it was made. Substitution necessarily involves two parties, an offender and one who takes his place. 
a debtor and one who discharges it for him. It is equally self-evident that substitution involves a two-fold effect. The position of each is changed in relation to the law. The one who before was innocent now becomes guilty, and the one who before was guilty now becomes innocent. This is a palpable effect and not a fine-spun theory. If, then, Christ bore the sins of his people, no sin can rest on them. If, on their behalf, he was made a curse, the law cannot now curse them. With the apostle we triumphantly exclaim, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? God that justifieth? Who is he that condemneth? Christ that died? Romans 8, 33-34 Therefore we boldly affirm that, before there can be the least failure in the divine design of Christ's atonement, the throne of God, which was founded upon righteousness and judgment, Psalms 97.2 must be overturned. But that is impossible. And number seven, the glory of God. No lengthy argument is needed to establish the fact that the glory of God requires the mediatorial work of Christ should be completely efficacious, that is, it should infallibly accomplish all it was designed to effect. If there were any failure in the fruits or results of the atonement, then the purpose of God would be foiled his covenant broken, his veracity forfeited, his power defeated, his justice sullied, and his glory dishonored. Few seem to realize the fearful implications which necessarily follow the principles they hold and advocate. To predicate an atonement which fails to atone, a redemption which does not redeem, a sacrifice which secures not the acts of remission of sins, is a horrible reflection upon all the attributes of God. To make the efficacy or success of the greatest of all God's work dependent upon the choice of fallen and depraved creatures is to magnify man at the cost of dethroning his maker. The manifestive glory of God is bound up in the person and work of Christ. Our Lord Jesus revealed this plainly when facing the crucial hour, he cried, Father, glorify thy name, John 12:28. Again he declared, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him, John 13:31. Compare also John 14:13. If Christ be dishonored, God is dishonored. But if Christ be glorified by the Father's acceptance of his work and by the Spirit's infallible application thereof, so that every effect is produced which was intended to bring forth, then is God supremely glorified. Therefore, we boldly declare that before there can be the slightest failure in the divine design of the atonement, God must cease to have any respect for his own honor. But that can never be. Chapter 11. The Atonement, Its Application. If the righteous scarcely, parenthesis, literally with difficulty, be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? 1 Peter 4.18. It seems that comparatively few of the Lord's people have an adequate conception of the obstacle in the way of their salvation. Of all that is involved in God's overcoming of them, and of the manner in which his salvation becomes theirs. Rightly did John Owen affirm, So great and glorious is the work of saving believers unto the utmost that it is necessary that the Lord Christ should lead a meditary life in heaven for the perfecting and accomplishing of it. Yet how few today recognize the needs be for this. There has been such a one-sided emphasis laid upon the death of Christ that the relation of his resurrection, ascension, and intercession to the salvation of his people is now little understood even in orthodox circles. If it were more clearly grasped that the redemptive work of Christ is a strictly priestly one, and if his priestly work were 
interpreted in the light of the Old Testament types, we should experience less difficulty in perceiving the necessity, the meaning and value of his present intercession on high. At the cross, Christ offered himself to God in all the merits of his life of perfect obedience as a satisfaction for his failing people. But what Christ did for his people and their actual entering into the good of what he did for them are two totally different things. That which he purchased for them has to be applied to them. It is at this point that so much confusion exists in the minds of many. God has left nothing uncertain, nor is anything contingent on the creature. Full provision was made by the wisdom of God for securing the results or fruitage of his son's work. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Isaiah 53.11 guarantees this. It is by the present ministry of Christ on high and by the operations of his spirit on earth that this is attained. The first of these will now engage our attention. The office of Christ, the great mediator between God and man, are the foundation of our hopes and the spring of our peace and joy, his priestly office particularly so. The exercise of his priestly office concerns two principal parts, his making full satisfaction to God by dying for his people and his intercession on the right hand of God. To offer and to intercede to sacrifice and to pray are both acts of the same sacerdotal office and both required of him who is high priest so that if he omitted either of these he cannot be a faithful priest for them. If either he doth not offer for them or not intercede for the assess of his oblation on their behalf he is wanting in the discharge of this office by him undertaken written by John Owen to which we may add that the third act of the high priest is his coming forth to bless those for whom he has offered an atonement Leviticus 9.22 1 Chronicle 23.13 Hebrew 9.28 but as we have said above though a one-sided conception of the death of Christ may fail to see the need for his present intercession as being requisite to their salvation their difficulty may be expressed thus if our salvation was secured by the one offering of Christ why must he now intercede for us on the other hand, if our salvation unto the uttermost, Hebrews 7.25, be obtained by Christ's intercession, what need was there for his atonement? We will answer in the words of H. Martin. Apparently, they mutually exclude each other because they do really mutually and reciprocally include each other. The offering by which alone we are perfected is not passive endurance or suffering of the cross, but that active priestly offering of the cross, which is prolonged without suffering into the function of intercession. And the intercession by which alone we are saved, even to the uttermost, is just the perpetual presentation of the continual burnt offering of Calvary, which, as an active offering, subsists in perpetuity and belongs to eternity, while the suffering of the cross belongs to the history of the past and the atonement, had it been mere suffering, would have belonged to the past too. The last quotation places the emphasis where it rightfully belongs. Had the satisfaction of Christ consisted merely of his passively enduring the wrath of God, then everything required of him as mediator had been accomplished when he died. But in such case, the much more of Romans 5.10 and the yea rather of Romans 8.34 had been rendered nugatory. Moreover, the sacrificial types of the Old Testament had been emptied of their meaning. Yea, the whole plan devised by God for the glorifying of himself and the saving of his elect had been thrown into confusion. But allow that the satisfaction of Christ is a priestly work in which he is active throughout, and these difficulties are at once removed, for the types and the exposition of them in the epistle to the Hebrews shows plainly enough that the work of atonement is not, in all respects, completed at the death of the victim. 
the intercession of Christ is just as requisite, just as vitally necessary in order to save his people as were his incarnation, obedience, and death. In support of what has just been said, we would call careful attention to one or two of the details found in Leviticus 16, where we have the fullest Old Testament type of Christ's high priestly work and office. As we hope to devote a separate chapter to the subject in the later one of this book, we shall now confine ourselves to that which immediately bears upon the present aspect of our theme. First, in verse 11, we read that Aaron, killing the bullocks for the sin offering, then in verse 14, of taking his blood from the veil and sprinkling it upon the mercy seat. In like manner, in verse 15, we find the goat treated in the same way, something more than its blood being shed at the altar, namely, brought within the veil. The antitype of this is found in Hebrews 9.12, where we read of Christ entering heaven by his own blood, and in 9.24, where we are told that he had gone there to appear in the presence of God for us. Again, the two altars of sacrifice and of incense were combined and correlative instruments of official action to the priest in the one complete office of his priesthood, and they constitute component and indispensable factors of one complete act of sacrificial worship. The same functionary or office bearer transacted at both he transacted for the same, same person or persons the blood of the self-same sacrifice that he had slain and offered on the altar he sprinkled or put upon the horns of the other. To dislocate or derange this coordination would be to negate this official action in its intrinsic import, to annihilate the gracious results of his priestly intervention, and indeed to avert his office utterly. His action at the altar of atonement was prerequisite to his approach to the altar of incense and the successful achievement which signaled his action at the latter revealed beyond the possibility of doubt the nature and efficacy of the services which he had accomplished at the former, while only in virtue of the two, in their combination and synthesis, was Aaron's priesthood a real priesthood at all. That was written by H. Martin. The intimate relation which existed between the brazen and the incense altars of Israel may be seen from their being linked together at Psalm 84.3. Thine altars, O Lord of hosts. A close connection between them is revealed in a number of scriptures. For instance, we gather from Leviticus 16, 12, 13, and Numbers 16, 46, that the fire in which the incense was laid upon the golden altar was taken from the brazen altar, or the sin offering was consumed. Thus, the activities of the one were based upon those of the other, the incense being kindled by that fire which had first fed upon the sacrifice, thus identifying the priest's service at both. This, in figure, tells us that our great high priest pleads for no blessings which his blood has not purchased and asks pardon from divine justice for no sins for which he did not atone. The measure of the blessings for which Christ pleads is God's estimate of the life which he gave. The wondrous scene portrayed in Isaiah 6 shows us again the inseparable connection between the two altars. There the prophet held the Lord of hosts in his an effable majesty and exalted glory, seated upon the throne in his heavenly temple, above which stood the seraphim with veiled faces, crying, Holy, Holy, Holy. What he saw and heard was so overwhelming that he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Verse 5. Blessed is it to mark the sequel. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs from off the altar, and he laid it upon my mouth, and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, 
and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged, verse 6 and 7. As another remark, the emblem of divine holiness had already consumed the sacrifice and was also consuming the sweet incense. Thus, symbolically, the prophet's lips were cleansed according to God's estimate of the value of the sacrifice and the person of our Lord. Number one, the nature of his intercession. Christ maketh intercession by his appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven in the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth, declaring his will to have it applied to all believers, answering all accusations against them, procuring for them quiet of conscience, notwithstanding daily failure, access with boldness to the throne of grace and acceptance of their person and sacrifices. T. Ridgely. This definition seems to embody the essential features of the present intercession of our great high priest. Having done everything on earth which God required from the surety of our salvation, both in the removal of what would hinder it, parenthesis, sins and the curse, and procuring what would affect it, parenthesis, perfect obedience or righteousness, he has now gone into heaven there to appear in the presence of God for us. Hebrews 9:24. First he appears in our nature. The mediator is the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2:5, and to intercede is to mediate. He did not cast off human nature when he left this earth, but carried it into heaven, retaining the same body, though glorified, as he had in the days of his humiliation. The same body in which he offered himself as a sacrifice to God, he now presents in heaven, a lamb as it had been slain, Revelation 5.6. The apostle does not say in Hebrew 9.24 that Christ entered heaven to appear there in glory and majesty as if his appearance had, there had been for himself only, but to appear in the presence of God for us. As, as he was born, lived, and died for us, so he ascended to heaven and appears in our nature at the right hand of God for us, Hebrews 6.20. Second, he appears as our advocate to present his people and their cause unto God. When Aaron was to enter the most holy place to intercede for Israel, he was to bear the names of the twelve tribes upon his heart and shoulders, Exodus 28.12.29. Thus he went there not in his own name, but in the name and behalf of his people. As our advocate, 1 John 2, 1, Christ replies to the accusations of Satan, Revelation 12:10. A typical adumbration of this is found in Zechariah 3, where we see Joshua, type of the church, charged by Satan. Christ the Lord, by his intercession with the Father, pleads that instead of Joshua, his accuser might be rebuked and confounded, acquitting and justifying the accused. No charge will have any better success, which is formed against those for whom Christ appears as advocate. See Romans 8:33-34. Third, he presents his meritorious sacrifice to God, pointing to his obedience and death instead of his people, to his blood which was shed for them. A typical high priest, when he was to mediate for Israel before God, brought in the blood of sacrifice and solemnly presented it. Hebrew 9:7. So Christ, by his own blood, has gone into heaven, thereby to make intercession for the transgressor. Isaiah 53:12. Christ's blood speaketh better things than Abel, Hebrew 12:24, crying for mercy as Abel's did for vengeance. Its efficacy is so potent and has as much the virtue of intercession as if it had been an articulate voice. The virtue of Christ's blood is still as fresh and powerful as if it were 
but just now shed. Note, new and living, in Hebrew 10.20. Fourth, he presents his will and desire that his people might have all which he purchased for them. The will of the divine nature as he is God, the desires of his human nature as he is man. Thus is revealed to us most fully in that wondrous 17th of John where we are permitted to hear the breathings of our great high priest. There we find him asking of the Father those things which are most requisite for his people in their time state. There we behold him putting in his claim on their behalf. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. John 17:24. Fifth, by the intercession of Christ, access to the throne of grace is obtained for his people. Though they have been delivered from the curse of the law, the flesh which still remains within them, daily procuring its evil fruit, defiling their service and interrupting their communion. As the conscience is made aware of this, the thought of drawing nigh unto the ineffable holy God would terrify were it not that the scriptures assure us we have one at his right hand pleading our cause. It is the realization of this blessed fact that gives us boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Hebrew 10.19 Imperfect as are our approaches, unworthy as we are in ourselves, feeble though our petitions be, yet there is one on high who has given much incense, and that, that he should add it to the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Revelation 8.3 Thus may we offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 2.5. And... Section 2, The Necessity of His Intersection In a humble endeavor to ascertain the reasons why God has appointed the intercession of Christ, respect should be had unto the divine honor, a mediator's glory, and his people's peace and security. Underlaying the whole plan of redemption, God has determined that we should be saved in a way and manner which most contributed to his own honor and praise, in a way which would most glorify his Son, and in a way which should make our salvation most sure and steadfast. Let us seek, then, to reverently ponder the needs be for our Savior's present mediation in the light of these basic considerations. The first reason, then, respects God himself. In general, God will be dealt with, with all like himself, in and throughout the whole way of our salvation from first to last, and carry it all along as a superior wrong, and so keep a distance between himself and sinners who are still to come to him by a priest and a mediator, Hebrews 7.25, upon whose mediation and intercession their salvation doth depend, and therefore through Christ in his dispensation of all to us downward doth carry us as a king, as one having all power to justify and condemn, yet upward toward God he carries it as a priest, who still must intercede to do all that which he has the power to do as a king. Therefore, in the second psalm, after that God has set him as king upon his holy hill, verse 6, namely in heaven, and so has committed all power in heaven and earth to him, then he must yet ask all that he would have done. Ask of me, and I will give thee, verse 8. God says to him, For though he be a king, yet he is God's king. I have set my king, and by asking from him God will be acknowledged to be above him that is above him as mediator. More particularly, God hath two attributes which he would have most eminently appear in their highest glory by Christ effecting our salvation, namely justice and free grace. 
and therefore hath so ordered the bringing about of our salvation, as that Christ might apply himself in a more special manner unto each of them by way of satisfaction to the one of entreaty to the other. Justice will be known to be justice and dealt with upon its own terms, and grace will be acknowledged to be free grace throughout the accomplishment of our salvation. You have both of them joined together in Romans 3:24-26, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth. Here is the highest justice and freest grace, both met to save us, and both ordered by God to be declared and set forth. Our salvation depending and being carried on, even in the application of it, by continuation of grace in the free way, notwithstanding satisfaction into justice. Therefore his free grace must be sought to, and treated with like itself, and applied upon in all, and sovereignty and freeness of it acknowledged in all, even as well as God's justice had the honor to be satisfied by a price paid to it, that so the severity of it might appear and be held forth in our salvation. Thus God having two attributes eminently to be dealt with, his justice and his free grace, it was meet that there should be two eminent actions of Christ's priesthood, wherein he should apply himself to each according to their kind, and as the nature and glory of each doth require. And accordingly, in his death he deals with justice by laying down a sufficient price, and in his intercession he entreateth free grace, and thus both come to be alike acknowledged written by T. Goodwin. What has been said above supplies the key which unlocks the blessed meaning of Hebrews 4.16, where Christians are encouraged to come boldly to the throne of grace, and that because they have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens. The Therefore, of verse 16, looking back to what is said there in verse 14, observe well that it is called the throne of grace of which our high priest now officiates. It is so designated because it is chiefly grace which his sacerdotal office now deals with and sues unto. Therefore does he there treat with God by way of intercession. Of this throne of grace in heaven, the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies was the type, and as Aaron brought the blood and the mercy seat together, Leviticus 16.14, so has Christ. But more, Aaron not only entered the holiest with blood, but with incense too, Leviticus 16.12, the figure of prayer, Revelation 8.3, to show that heaven is open unto God's people not by mere justice, parenthesis bloodshedding, but by grace also, yet grace which must be entreated. Thus it is that there is unfinished work of Christ in heaven as well as his finished work on earth. In the one he dealt with justice here below, in the other he is treating with mercy in heaven. All the grace which Christ now bestows on his people he first receives from God, and that in answer to his petitions. In Acts 2.33, it is said that consequently upon his ascension, he received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, which he, parenthesis Christ, hath shed forth, namely on the day of Pentecost. Yet if we go back to John 14.16, we learn that Christ received the Spirit, that as mediator he might send him forth in answer to his intercession. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. So, too, in Ephesians 4.11, we read that the ascended Christ gave gifts unto his church. But if we go back to Psalm 68.18, we learn that he received the parenthesis from the Father those gifts for men, and that as the fruit of his intercession. 
In the second place, God had respect unto the glory of his beloved Son. In ordering our salvation to be accomplished by his work of intercession, God had in view the honor and praise of Christ too, that all might honor the Son even as they honored the Father, John 5.23. Thus, for the maintaining of his honor and the manifestation of his glory, it was appointed that he should continue to intercede. None of his offices were to lie idle. All offices have work assigned them, and all work properly done has honor as its reward. When, then, Christ had finished his work here upon earth as pertaining to the meriting of our salvation, God appointed this perpetual work in heaven for the applying and bringing his people into possession of his salvation, and that as a priest by praying in the virtue of the one oblation of himself, see Hebrews 7:24. For this same reason it became him that the whole work of salvation from first to last and every step and degree of its accomplishment should be so ordered that Christ would still continue to have as great a hand in its application and consummation as he had in laying the first foundations thereof. Thus we have expressed in Hebrews 12:2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, in what immediately follows, two things are said of him as the two causes of two effects concerning each of which faith needs to be looking unto him. First, he is to be looked at as dying, enduring the cross. Second, as set down at the right hand of the majesty on high, there interceding. We need to look at him as dying as the author or beginning of our faith and at his sitting at God's right hand as intercessor for the finishing of our faith, and so of our final salvation. Christ is both the Alpha and the Omega. In the third place, God had respect unto the comfort and security of his people. God would have our salvation made sure, and us saved all manner of ways over and over, first by ransom and price, as captives are redeemed, which was done by his death, which of itself was enough. Second, by power and rescue, so in his resurrection, ascension, and sitting at God's right hand, which is also sufficient. Third, by intercession, a way of favor and entreaty, and this likewise would have been enough, but God would have all things concur in it, whereof, notwithstanding, not one could fail, a threefold cord, wherefore each strand was strong enough, but altogether must of necessity hold. Written by T. Goodwin. The whole application of Christ's satisfaction, both in justifying and saving us, first and last, has a spatial dependence upon his intercession. The leading difference between the influence of his death and that of his intercession unto our salvation is this, that the one was the means of procuring or obtaining it for us, the other the means of securing or applying it to us. Christ purchased salvation by the one, but we are possessed of it by the other. It was not until Christ was perfected through suffering that he became the author, parenthesis, or applying cause of eternal salvation, Hebrew 5.7. The two things were united at the cross. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressor, Isaiah 53.12. That while the death of Christ procured our salvation, it did not, parenthesis of itself, secure it, seems very evident from 1 Corinthians 15:17, If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. Those for whom Christ intercedes are they whose sin he bore, Isaiah 53:12, namely those given to him by the Father, John 17:9. 9. 
That for which he intercedes is what he purchased for them by his satisfaction, namely eternal redemption, Hebrew 9.12, which includes the gift of the Holy Spirit to apply unto them all the virtues of his perfected work. That which the Holy Spirit communicates to them is life, light, love, faith, repentance, and perseverance in obedience. As we shall devote the whole of the next chapter to an amplification of this deeply important yet greatly neglected aspect of our theme, only the briefest statement thereon can now be made. By his death, Christ meritoriously procured for all of his people an actual participation in the blessings of redemption, and this is infallibly applied to them by his Spirit. By the operations of the Spirit, the elect are brought to saving faith and repentance, so that every requirement of God's government is fully met. Section number three, the efficacy of his intercession. First, this is fully assured by the fact that Christ's petitions are grounded upon indisputable merit, and therefore must prevail in the high court of justice. His obedience unto death was infinitely meritorious and did deserve for his people that which, as intercessor on their behalf, he pleads for. He fully satisfied every demand of the law, perfectly performed the work which he came to do, paid to the last might all his people owed, and therefore, because of the intrinsic value of what he did, he must in very righteousness be granted that which he purchased. Second, the success of Christ in the session is fully assured by the fact that he sues only for that which is agreeable to his Father, and therefore is the Father entirely ready to grant his requests. He pleads for nothing but what is according to the will of God, Hebrews 10, 7-9. God's will was that Christ should be sacrificed, and it is upon the ground of having perfectly performed his will that his plea proceeds, such being the ground it must prevail. Were it not effectual, the will of God would be ineffectual. But it is God that justifieth, so as none can condemn. How so? It is Christ that maketh the intercession. Romans 8:33-34. Third, the success of Christ's intercession is fully assured because it is a commemoration of his sacrifice. That which Christ pleads before God is his own blood, which is precious in his sight. The sacrifice of Christ is a sweet-smelling Savior unto God, Ephesians 5:12. He is infinitely pleased with it, and in view of it, he cannot but grant Christ, upon his personal application, that which it was offered to procure. If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ prevail as he pleads its merits before God? Hebrews 9, 12-13. Fourth, the success of Christ's intercession is fully assured by the fact that he is the beloved of the Father. In him the Father is so well pleased that he can deny him not that he asks. Christ himself declared, Thou hearest me always, in John 11:42. When Esther appeared before King Azarias to intercede for her people condemned to destruction, he gave her this assurance. What is thy request? It shall be even given thee to the half of the kingdom, 5:3. Christ was given still greater assurance before he entered upon his sacrificial work. Ask of me, God said, and I will give thee the Gentiles for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possessions. Psalms 2.8 This is the greatest thing for which Christ does ask, the sum of all he intercedes for. Finally, the success of Christ's intercession is fully assured by the fact that nothing in, of, from, or by his people can possibly contravail it. 
Wherefore he is able also to save them unto the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7.25 If Christ has once taken a person into his prayers, he will never, under any circumstances, cast him out. A man may be cast out of good men's hearts and prayers, as Saul was out of Samuel's, and apostate Israel was out of Jeremiah's. But no man was ever cast out of Christ's prayers when he once took him in. The only possible danger could be through sinning, but Christ's prayers see to it and prevail and prevent them from apostatizing, John 17:15, which is the only sin for which there is no forgiveness. If any one, for emphasis, of the family sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, 1 John 2, 1. How infallibly certain it is, then, that Christ shall see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied, Isaiah 53:11. He sees to it himself that nothing which he purchased by his obedience unto death shall be lost. The application of his satisfaction is as sure as the impenetration of it. He is himself constantly engaged in maintaining the interest of those for whom he died. There is not only an access into the grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, but there is also a standing in the same, Romans 5, 1, 2. And that continued standing is expressly attributed to his life, Romans 5, 10, which, as it is interpreted for us in Hebrews 7, 25, means his ever living to intercede. We owe our standing in grace every moment to his setting in heaven and interceding every moment. There is no fresh act of justification goes forth, but there is a fresh act of intercession. And as though God created the world once for all, yet every moment he is said to create, every new act of providence being a new creation, so likewise as Jesus continually, through his continuing out free grace to justify us at the first, and this Christ doeth by continuing his intercession. He continues a priest forever, and so we continue to be justified forever. Written by T. Goodwin. Chapter 12. The Atonement, Its Application Concluded. We cannot do better than begin this chapter by transcribing the open words from Chapter 1, Book 3 of Calvin's Institute. We are now to examine how we obtain the enjoyment of those blessings which the Father hath conferred on his only begotten Son, not for his own private use, but to enrich the poor and needy. At first it must be remarked that as long as there is a separation between Christ and us, all that he suffered and performed for the salvation of mankind is useless and unavailing to us. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada. 
T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.